good morning. Uh, it is great to see you. As Fabian just prayed, my name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm really grateful to have the privilege of preaching God's word to you this morning. Uh, and if you've been with us, then you know we've been in a series in First Peter titled "Living Hope" for the past month, and it really has just been a flyover uh, of this New Testament epistle as there's so much more gold that we could mine if we spent a little bit more time in it. But today we're going to finish up our series as we will launch next week into our Advent sermon series titled Behold the King. Uh, And we will spend time in the Gospel of Luke chapters 1 through 2 in the season of Advent. And since we're not covering everything in the book of 1 Peter, and this is my last sermon, I figured that I would preach Peter's final words of the letter because final words really matter. Uh, Final words are the things that you feel are of great importance. It's what you want people to remember, at least you hope they will remember. They are the expressions that you have to get off your chest. It's why every morning when I'm dropping off my kids at school, my last words are to pray with them and to remind them that God is with them, that God loves them, and that I love them. It's what I hope they will always know and remember. Final words matter. What the coach says before the team takes the field is what the coach wants the team to remember when the game gets hard. What people say to their departing loved ones is what they feel most deeply and hope will be received loud and clear. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering. They're spread throughout Asia Minor. He has referred to them as exiles, strangers in this world, the beloved of God. He has called them to be connected in community, to be a peculiar people, a holy people in this world. And he has repeatedly told them to expect pain and suffering in this life because this world is not your home. You're merely passing through, headed to an eternal home when the resurrected Christ brings heaven to earth. And so Peter speaks his final words in chapter 5. And so let's turn and listen to these important words. If you will, stand with me and we give attention to God's word. In 1 Peter 5, we're going to look at the last half of verse 5 all the way through verse 11. It's in your bulletin and on the screen as well as in the Bibles in your pew. This is God's word to us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Lord God, we need you to speak to us this morning. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fall fresh upon the scriptures that were just read so that they would not be my words that are heard this morning, but your word would be planted deep in our souls and in our hearts, that our our hearts might be fertile ground, that our ears might be opened so that you might bear fruit uh, in our lives, that you might transform us because you've spoken to us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation 
of all of our hearts will be pleasing to you now. Lord, we pray that you speak powerfully to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I feel like I have to start out by addressing the elephant in the room, or rather the devil in the passage. And we have to talk about the devil this morning. It's in Peter's final words. Now, you might be thinking, I mean, come on, Daniel, are, are we really going to talk about the pointed ear, red little man called the devil this morning? Aren't we a little too sophisticated for that these days? It's like the story of the two six-year-olds struggling with the problem of the existence of the devil. Uh, one boy said, there isn't any devil. And the other, rather upset, said, what do you mean there isn't any devil? It talks about the devil all the way through the Bible. And the first replied, oh, that's not true, you know. It's just like Santa Claus. The devil turns out to be your dad. <laughs> no, Peter, Peter's final words are about the devil. And the reality that our great conflict in this world is not our painful circumstances and relationships, but rather a cosmic conflict between good and evil. The Bible starts this way in Genesis chapter 1. The earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the earth, and then God created a place for God to dwell with his image bearers. Genesis chapter 1 is not so much a science manual on how the earth came to be as much as it reveals from the beginning of time there's been a cosmic battle between darkness and light, darkness and the kingdom of God. And it only takes two chapters of reading into our Bibles to get to Genesis chapter 3. And there the enemy is tempting and attempting to destroy and to defeat the kingdom of God. The Bible refers to the enemy in other places as the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the red dragon, the angel who fell from heaven. In our passage, he's referred to as the roaring lion. That there are two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of God, God's dominion, and the kingdom of darkness, Satan's dominion. And I know this can sound like fantasy to many of us, but there is a reason a child is captivated by fantasy, and many of us are still captivated by fantasy. We were created with an imagination that is beyond this world. We love reading, and I love reading to my children about the battle between Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort. We love reading about the battle between Aslan and the White Witch in the Chronicles of Narnia because deep down we know the great storyline of good versus evil is a true spiritual reality. There's a real enemy, brothers and sisters, the devil, a roaring lion looking to devour. C.S. Lewis rightfully warned against two errors when it comes to the devil, overbelief and underbelief. Overbelief in the devil, it's a, a leprechaun demonology. This unhealthy fear and belief that the devil is behind everything, that he's hiding under every bush, that he's behind everything that's going wrong in our lives. And if I'm honest, I don't think that is the error for the majority of us here. It might be for some other churches, but I don't think it's the case for Christ Central. But it is an error, overbelief. The other error is underbelief, and I think this is where most of us kind of land. Underbelief. The devil's not real, or, or at least we functionally live as though the devil is not real, even though we believe he is. Listen, if I told you this morning 
that there was some, someone intent on coming after you. That there was someone intent on destroying you. You would leave this place with a different alertness than when you came in. The Bible is very clear. There is a real enemy to God's kingdom. And to fear or ignore the devil are both dangerous positions. When I was a junior in college, I had the opportunity to go on a trip to Lhasa, Tibet. And honestly, the spiritual cosmic forces were palpable when I was there. I remember seeing a 90-year-old man prostrate himself around the Patala Palace, which is the center of Buddhism in Lhasa. There were children and women and men with prayer beads and callous knees from their own prostrating around the temple. I knew there were spiritual forces at work. I knew there was a battle between good and evil. When I visited a long way Malawi in Africa at the age of 27, I felt the, the realities of supernatural forces as I preached in a rural village church and at the same time there were shamans doing incantations on people. But living in America, it's easy for us to fall into underbelief for a host of reasons. The impact of enlightenment on our thought, the resources at our disposal to live the way we want, the power we think we possess. But Christ Central, let's not be naive. It wasn't just politics behind Hitler. It wasn't just economics behind slavery. It wasn't just bad parenting behind an addiction. It wasn't just a bad college experience behind the University of Virginia shooting on the bus this past week. There is a real enemy at work waging cosmic conflict in this world. One of the best movies of all time, in my opinion, is the 1995 movie Usual Suspects with Kevin Spacey playing Verbal Kent. At the end of the movie, Verbal Kent says one of the greatest tricks the devil ever played was to convince the world he didn't exist. And what we see played out in the Bible and even in Verbal Kent's statement is that, the, is that the devil doesn't always attack out in the open, but rather is subtle, which is why he's known as the deceiver. That the ultimate goal of the enemy is to get us and, and to lead us to believe that, that we should live life without God. And Peter is countering this in his final words in the letter. And more than anything, Peter wants us to know to, that we should find our life with and in God. And so he wants us to be aware of the devil's subtle tactics. He gives us two subtle ways that the devil leads us to think that we can live life without God. Pride and anxiety. Pride and anxiety. Pride comes from believing the subtle lie that I don't need God. Anxiety comes from the subtle lie, God is not able. Now don't miss this, herein lies the deceitfulness of the enemy. He uses our own heart's sins more than any affront we think he might use. And Peter gives us the weapon of warfare that we're to engage in this cosmic battle, humility. Humility is the weapon that we've been given to fight our enemy. Humility is the antidote to pride and anxiety. Verse 5, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on humility. That humility is a garment we wear. Clothe ourselves with humility. 
And so I want us to look at how humility leads us to resist pride and how humility leads us to overcome anxiety. Those are my two points. Humility leads us to resist pride and humility leads us to overcome anxiety. Let's look first at how humility leads us to resist pride, to fight the subtle lie, I don't need God. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4, just before our passage, Peter refers to Christians as sheep, which is not a compliment. <laughs> we, we, we might think it's a compliment, but it's not intended to, to kind of conjure up this like soft, cuddly sheep that's so lovable. No, sheep are not the sharpest animal in the animal kingdom. They're quite dumb. Sheep are also very vulnerable to being attacked by a predator if it wanders away from the flock. Sheep are needy. Sheep need a shepherd. Pride is the belief that I don't need, that I'm self-sufficient, that I'm strong, I'm competent. Pride places you at the center of your existence. It is in many ways the foundational sin. It is the greatest lie the devil uses. You are the center of all things. David Foster Wallace was an author, professor of English. He died in 2008. In 2005, he gave what many people think was the best commencement speech of all time at Kenyon College. David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, but very aware of life and how pride plays a strong role in all of our hearts. Listen to what he said in his commencement speech. He said, here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you're not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. Pride is the intense concentration on the self. And we are all prone to it. It is hardwired into us. Lewis Meads said, because of pride, we learn to swagger. That we look around and whenever we see a new person, we are unconsciously thinking, how can this person contribute to my need to count? Life, therefore, becomes a constant battle to use people to bolster your own self. Like that pride is the swagger to bolster self. We joke today about swagger, swag. Charlie Dinsmore, who's on staff here, taught me a new word this week. I know I'm getting old when I'm learning like new words that I didn't know were used. It was the word drip. <laughs> he, said, he said college student, uh, a college student came up to him and told him he had, he had good drip, which is someone's style, their outfit, right, their shoe game, all of it kind of combined. And, and we joke about drip. We joke about swag and swagger. But Jesus is saying, watch out. Be alert. If you think you have no need apart from yourself and your abilities, the enemy is going to take you out. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Humility is the antidote to pride. Humility says, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm a sheep that's needy. I am so weak that I need a powerful shepherd to lead me. Needy is how God created us in the beginning. And this humility leads us back to our truest selves. As Thomas Merton said, pride makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. Humility is the weapon to fight the lie, I don't need God. It is the antidote to pride. Let's look secondly at at how humility leads us to overcome anxiety, to fight the subtle lie, God is not able. Peter, he's writing to anxious people. They are experiencing wars, deaths, persecution, sufferings of all kinds. And then he says in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Peter's counsel is different than many might give these days. I often hear people say, don't worry, you can do it. Don't worry, things will be just fine. Don't worry. But Peter is telling us that life is a lot harder than we even realize. There's a real enemy prowling and looking to attack. Therefore, cast your anxiety on God. This word cast, it means to throw or to toss. Like someone might toss their shoes into the closet or someone might throw a saddle onto the back of a horse. Toss our anxiety on the strong shoulders of the God who is able. Anxiety comes from the belief that God's not able, from the belief that you're all alone and life is on your shoulders. I think that's why Peter reminds them that they're not alone in verse 9. He says, know that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout the world. You're not alone. Now, I need to make a distinction here, I think, between fear and anxiety because they're not the same. Fear, I believe, is a good emotion. Uh, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's a helpful emotion because fear brings appropriate alert to danger. So fear does, appropriate alert to danger. So let me just make a confession this morning. I wake up every day with fear because I have no idea what this new day might bring. The fear is not bad. It makes me alert to the dangers that might come in the new day. The distinction, or rather the question, is what do I do in my fear? I can either turn to God and trust in him And know that he is strong and able and that I'm not alone and that life doesn't sit on my shoulders. Or I can believe life is up to me. It's all on me. And then I can be overcome by anxiety. I was listening to a podcast recently of an interview with a guy by the name of Jamie Winship. Uh, He's a Christian, lived 25 years in the Middle East working as a peace conciliator in extremely hostile Muslim countries. He's the founder now of a company called Identity Exchange. Uh, In the 25 years uh, of Jamie Winship and his family living in the Middle East, he experienced a lot of danger. He was abused, threatened, even kidnapped. And the interviewer of the podcast asked Jamie, is there a time in your life that you can remember being the most afraid, the most full of fear? And he said it was when they were living in Indonesia. His children were all under the age of 10. And Indonesia at this time was was extremely violent. Protests were happening. Foreigners, Americans in particular, were not viewed favorably. 
Jamie and his family were told to leave the country to flee, but they decided to trust God and to stay in country. So one day, uh, he loads up all the kids into his car, and and they're driving, and they make a turn onto a one-way street. And as they make this turn, all of a sudden, they see this large, angry mob of people, thousands of people, yelling, chanting, throwing rocks, angry, headed straight to his car. He turns around, realizes he can't reverse. He's got nowhere to go. This mob is marching right towards his three kids and himself in this car, and he says he immediately turns around to to his kids, and he says, quick, pray. Pray that God would make us invisible. And as the mob came, they parted around the car and went right by as if they were not there. Jamie said he started the car back up, started to pull away, and his oldest son said, Dad, quick, pray. Pray we're visible again. As they were concerned, they would remain invisible. Jamie said fear is the warning of danger. It's a good thing, but then fear points to what you think or perceive about a situation. Fear turns into anxiety when you're in a situation and you believe it's on your shoulders rather than the strong shoulders of God. He was afraid in that car with his kids, but in an act of faith, he and his children cast all their cares on God and God made them invisible. God delivered them. Now that might sound dramatic, But if we believe in cosmic powers, then our God who exists above this world has all the powers to do as he pleases. He is able. And so we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Humility says, God, I'm not sure how to handle this. God, I don't know what's coming, but God, you're great, I'm small. You're able, I'm not. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. The devil is prowling around, subtly trying to lead us to believe life is is best lived without God, to believe the lie we don't need God, to believe the lie God's not able, but we clothe ourselves in humility. Did you notice this call to clothe ourselves with humility is an ongoing process. We continually clothe ourselves in humility because in this life, We will never be set free completely from pride and anxiety. So please please hear this. Our struggles with pride and anxiety are not necessarily evidences of our deficiencies. They are evidences of our need for God. So we clothe ourselves with humility. How do we do this? Have you ever tried to tell yourself to be humble? Be humble. Be humble. You just become more centered upon yourself, which is an anti-God state of mind. I'm not exactly sure who said this, but if you've been around here, you've heard one of us quote the anonymous quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking of yourself less, but think, uh, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So the way that humility happens is when our God becomes bigger and bigger, and bigger, and our focus is on him, not on ourselves. Now, Peter is writing it in this, in this way. In 1 Peter 4, 19, right before chapter 5, Peter says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. God is the creator, the ruler over all things. He's God, we're not. He's the creator, we're the creatures. 
Chapter 5, verse 6, he has the strong, mighty hand. All power is his. 1 Peter 5, verse 4, he's the chief shepherd. He will take care of us, protect us, lead God, and care for us. 1 Peter 5, 11, to Christ be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ has the dominion, meaning Christ has crushed the head of the serpent in this cosmic battle. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has won the cosmic war. The kingdom of God is victorious over the kingdom of darkness. But until Christ returns and the victory is made visible, we find ourselves in a daily battle with a real enemy. So verse 9, Peter says, resist him. Resist him. Don't allow the devil a foothold. Be alert. There are real spiritual forces at work in this world. Remember that our enemy is a roaring lion. But he is the imitation lion. For Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's won the war. And so may the victory roar of Jesus and the triumph of the kingdom of God cause our hearts to be filled with the wonder of his greatness. So daily we clothe ourselves in humility under the mighty hand of God so that we might resist the devil. Remember, you're not the center of the universe. King Jesus is. Remember, you don't know what tomorrow holds. King Jesus does. And you can trust him. And we're going to sing one of my favorite songs here to close our service. Never Lost by C.C. Winans. And we will sing, God, you can do all things. You can do all things but fail. Because you've never lost a battle. No, you've never lost a battle. And I know you never will. And this is true, Christ Central Church. And so when we sing it, let's sing it like we believe it. Amen? Let's pray. Well, God, I ask that you would help us to be sober-minded and alert to the realities that we have a real enemy. May we not ignore the reality that we have, that we have and are involved in a cosmic battle. But at the same time, Lord, we do not fear. For you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are triumphant and you are with us and you care for us and you lead us by your strong right hand, a mighty hand. You love us. You know all that's going on in our lives. You know our tendencies to make ourselves the center of our world. You know our tendencies to think you're not able. And you pour out grace upon grace to draw us back to yourself. And you remind us that you are with us and that you, Jesus, triumph over the sin in our own hearts and the temptation of the enemy. We pray that you would allow us to trust you every day, clothing ourselves in humility. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.